0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a lamp into my, a light into my feet and a lamp into my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I just noticed, are all the ladies back from prayer meeting or are you just dribbling in? They're just dribbling in. Well, they can dribble in while we're having prayer. Um, we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word, focus on the word this evening, then I'll open in prayer. let's pray. Father, it's such a great privilege that we can come together as a body of believers to study your word, to think through the issues of life in light of your word, to have our thinking expanded, challenged, directed by the eternal truths of your word. Father, we just are so thankful for this congregation, for this church, and for all that it stands for. We're thankful that uh, you have been pleased to use us in so many different ways in ministry and in uh, through the lives of those who study here, both uh, those who are local and those who are listening uh, via electronic means somewhere, Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, provide our needs and to take care of this congregation. Father, we pray that uh, pray that tonight, as we study your word, that we can concentrate and focus. That the uh, details of life that so often interfere. Uh, will not distract us, that we will have the mental discipline and focus to keep our attention here on your word and not let it wander around to things that are going to happen tomorrow or next week or things that happened earlier in the day, but that we can just relax and, and be refreshed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are back in our study of the Antichrist in Daniel 8, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Daniel 8. But some of you may be pleased to know we're out of some of the, some of the high weeds related to all of those uh, historical details that everybody's pretty unfamiliar with related to the history of the uh, empires in the ancient world. There's a lot that I didn't have a chance to go into, but I'm trying to trim this enough to where it just focuses on the main issues without everybody getting lost in all of those all of those details. I know it, sometimes it's hard enough for me to do it. I can't imagine what some of y'all might feel like trying to trudge through uh, some of those unfamiliar unfamiliar details. We've started by looking at this issue in Revelation 13:1 and 2, which talks about the beast and the kingdom now one thing that you know i keep going I start almost every class off with this verse but one thing that happens is each time you look at it as it so often happens with different verses in the bible something else sort of stands out another thing that um, you, you see uh, that i see is that i'll i'll read somebody else read another view another position and recognize that well, wait a minute, that's not exactly what that verse says, and I want to draw your attention to this that John stands on the sand of the sea, sees a beast coming out of the sea. now the beast that comes out of the sea is really more a representation of of the kingdom as well as the king. it's both because and you see this even in in the passages back in um, uh, back in Daniel 7, I pointed that out in the interpretation of the four beasts that the concept of the king or the kingdom uh, sometimes overlap with the identification of a king or personage with a particular kingdom. For example, when we think of Rome, I would suggest that most people, the first person they identify that with is Julius Caesar, or you uh, think of the United States of America and perhaps the person most Associated with that would be George Washington. So in this passage, the beast coming up out of the sea with the ten horns and the seven heads, and on his horns were the ten diadems, and on his heads were the blasphemous names, represents the kingdom because when you get into verse 2, the beast which I saw is like a leopard, has the feet of a bear, the mouth like a lion, and dragon gave him his power and his authority, It's both. He has elements of the, 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 as we saw in Daniel 7, the leopard, the bear, the lion represented kingdoms. They represented Babylon, uh, Persia, and Greece. But it's also representing the individual that is the manifestation of that kingdom, which is the Antichrist. So I think that's important to see that there is a certain... um, uh fluidity there in terms of the in terms of that that usage so we're focusing on who this first beast is it's the kingdom because it's comprised of the ten nations the ten horns the seven heads and then it is the personage of the antichrist who is the first beast as well. Now, we first looked at Daniel 7, then we got into Daniel 8, and Daniel 8 focuses on two of the kingdoms, the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of Greece, the kingdom of Persia Persia, and the uh, the kingdom of Greece. And in the first part of the verse, there's a ram and a goat. The ram represented Persia, and the goat with the one large horn, the conspicuous horn, represents represents Greece. And so what we're talking about in the rest of the chapter, really it all focuses on that kingdom of Greece. We saw that in Daniel 8.8, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. This is uh, Alexander the Great at the beginning of the kingdom, expands, his influence conquers most of the known world at that time. But as soon as he had finished that Conquest had vanquished the Persians, conquered all the way to the Indus River. Uh, he died, very uh, very young. He was 33 years of age, and he's replaced by these four conspicuous horns that are the generals that divide up his kingdom. We've seen that the for biblical purposes, the two most important ones were the kingdom around uh, Egypt the Ptolemies that and the last ruler in the Ptolemy line was Cleopatra the who is the Cleopatra you normally think of when you think of the when you hear the name Cleopatra and she was the was Greek and a descendant of, of the Ptolemies as well as the Seleucids because as we saw last time Cleopatra the 1st was a daughter of one of the one of the early Seleucids that had been married to a Ptolemy in order to uh, try to bring some um, union between the two empires. Daniel 8.21 gives us the interpretation that the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn was the first king. And then Daniel 20, 8.22 states that the broken horn, the four horns that arose in its place represented these four kingdoms. So the interpretation is given by... By the Scripture. We've seen these maps. I want to go over them again because they (coughs) help us to understand the dimensions and location of these events. Now, one of the reasons we study this is because there just the first primary reason we study this in the Word of God. Therefore, we have to understand it. second reason we study it is because it pertains to prophecy, pertains to the time of the end, as is uh, stated in verse 17. And we study it because we see that prophecy that was given before these events, 300 years before these events, is fulfilled in incredible detail. And it's a great passage to go to in order to demonstrate that uh, God supernaturally gave this information to Daniel of course the liberals try to discount that that's why they say that Daniel was really written after 200 because that way uh they can claim that he's just writing history and not prophecy because they reject up front the idea that there's supernatural revelation from God and anyone could predict the future with such detail but you see the extent of the Greek empire at its at its largest extent, all the way from India, the Indus River, and there in the far east, that's the area that we see in the maps and the news, Af- uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and those areas, and they were as difficult for uh, Alexander to conquer as they are today, many of those areas were never really controlled by him, uh, then in the, in the south, they extended uh, down to Egypt, They extended throughout Persia, uh, both Iraq and Iran, current Iraq and Iran, but did not include the Arabian Peninsula. Then to the north, it extended up to almost the Caucasus there between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, including uh, much of modern Turkey as well as uh, the areas of Armenia, and not quite taking in the areas of, of, uh, of modern Georgia. And then to the east, it included uh, Greece, Macedonia, Thrace, these areas. Now, that got split up into four basic areas Under the, um, when, when the kingdom split up, and the two that we're focusing on are the ones outlined in red on the right, the uh, kingdom of the Ptolemies and the kingdom of the Seleucids. And the king that is the focal point of this chapter is Antiochus the Fourth called Antiochus Epiphanes, and he is the one that is chosen by God the Holy Spirit as the one who most closely resembles the antichrist now tonight what i 'm focusing on is how does he represent the antichrist and that 's an important question today because there is Uh, A a lot of debate that has cropped up in the last 10 or 15 years, uh first time I ever heard this position was probably about 20, 20 years or so ago, but it's becoming much more prevalent today, so I think we need to look at it. And that is the view that the Antichrist is Muslim, or that the Antichrist derives from Assyria, the old Assyrian Empire, which would include parts of northern Iraq today, the area of the Kurds, Kurdistan, and Syria. And that seems to fly against what many of us were taught that the, that the Antichrist is European and Roman. And it comes out of a lot of people. You get Walid Shubat, you have a number of these former or Muslim background believers who are out and they're trying to argue that the Antichrist is Muslim and that there will be, that's the, the kingdom of the Antichrist really comes out of the rise of all of this Islamic fascism. And I don't think they're right. I've looked at a number of their positions, a number of the things that they've stated, and I just don't think it really fits the Scripture. I think it's a case of of what we sometimes call newspaper exegesis, where you tend to let the current events of the day influence how you understand Scripture. And that's always plagued the study of prophecy. And I think that uh, we've seen in history people tend to identify whoever the bad guy is in history at that time with the Antichrist, the American colonists and the preachers in the American colonies all preached that George III was the Antichrist. Uh, later, they preached that Napoleon was the Antichrist and Bismarck. And then you get into the um, 20th century and you have Hitler as the Antichrist and Saddam Hussein as the Antichrist and all these views that have uh, have circled around. And we need to just stick with what with what Scripture says. The reason, one reason that many people have um, gone to this Syrian, and we have to call it Syrian/Greek view of the Antichrist, because in their view, uh, the, be, their, in their view, the Antichrist comes out of that area of, of Syria or Assyria. But since it was part of the breakup of that fourfold breakup of the Greek Empire, he comes out. Uh, he's Greek slash Roman, which is very confusing, I think. And, but, that's, but that's their argument. And one of the things that they will say is that uh, because Antiochus Epiphanes was Greek and he functioned in the area, the geographical vicinity of Syria and Assyria, and he is the one that is portrayed as the type of the Antichrist, that that tells us that the Antichrist will come from that region. Now, I don't think that's right. We have to look at the scriptures and let the scriptures tell us the areas in which, uh, the Antichrist is being compared to Antiochus Epiphanes. It's not everything in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes that is related to this typology. So, we have, it's only three things. The first is, and I've, and I've sort of renamed these, they're the same three, but I've, I've, Got a little alliteration going. The first is character. He's typical of many politicians, many leaders in the kingdom of man, that because he has a winsome character, because he has an attractive character, and he was physically attractive based on the images that we have that are on coins, he was physically attractive, he was successful, at least in the early stages of his, of his kingdom, he conquered, uh, the armies of the uh, of those who were in the still in the area of Persia, and he defeat uh, he defeated the, um, the the Ptolemies, and so he expanded the borders, and he was collecting the money that was needed to pay off the Roman debt from the Peace of Apamea, which we studied last time. Remember, I said that his father, Antiochus III, had gone to the aid of Philip VI of Macedon in the attempt to defeat the Romans. And when the Romans soundly defeated Phil, uh, defeated uh, Antiochus III on three different occasions, basically wiped him out, they imposed this burdensome... Um, uh, Treaty on him at Apamea that was highly restrictive in fact, I compared it to the uh, compared it to the Versailles Treaty at the end of World War I, which sort of brings up an interesting point i 've dis- discussed with other pastors it 's hard enough to always come up with relevant uh, comparisons and analogies and illustrations for people, but we live in a world today where uh, so many people don 't even know what the Treaty of Versailles was that you have to stop and teach them the analogy before you can teach them the reality sometimes. So uh, if that gets by you, nevertheless, the the um, parts of the treaty were, first of all, that Antiochus had to surrender all the territory under the Seleucid control in Asia Minor. This was some of his wealthiest territory, the various uh, uh, metals that were mined in, in Turkey, Plus a number of other things made it uh, made, provided much of the uh, financial support for the empire. Second, he had to surrender all of his elephants. That meant that he was he had to give up all of his uh, heavy armor. To put it in a modern analogy, he had to give up his his uh, uh, heavy attack force and his elephant elephant battalions. Third, he had to surrender his navy. He had to give up all of his ships and that cut out communications trade and supply which really limits your ability to produce money and just wipes out your your economy fourth he had to agree that no troops would be recruited no troops for his army would be to, uh, recruited from Asia minor greece or the aegean area and fifth over a period of of 12 uh, 12 years he had to pay, they had to pay off a 52,000 talent um war reparation debt to to Rome, and this was equivalent to several billion dollars. Of course, a billion isn't what it used to be. Now it's a trillion. If you remember a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I was talking about how large a number a trillion is. We just don't get our hands around it. Well, somebody was listening that morning, and by the end of class, they had emailed me a a really good way to understand this. If you started spending a million dollars a day from the day Jesus was born to today, you would spend just about three-quarters of a trillion dollars. You wouldn't even have spent a trillion dollars yet. That's how much a trillion is. So we hear all these numbers thrown around quite a bit today as if it's, oh, it's not that big a deal, just a couple of trillion more. What's another trillion here or there? Well, that's a tremendous amount, and the major problem with that is it's such a large number that it, when it starts getting larger than the gross, uh, gross domestic product, the gross national product, then that basically means that if they taxed everybody 100% of what they made, they still couldn't pay the bill. That means you're basically bankrupt and broke. It's impossible to pay those kinds of, of, of debts off. So the, the Romans imposed this extremely burdensome treaty upon the Seleucids, and they had to try to pay it. So that's why they're trying to expand their territory. Their military is trying to conquer more places. Antiochus III started raiding temples, and then Antiochus fourth is carrying, uh, carrying that on but he's portrayed in scripture not so much for um, not not so much for some of the, the fact that he's greek or that he's syrian but his character he's brilliant he's arrogant he's cunning he comes up with solutions to problems that's what we'll see as the idea in the greek there he's able to look at these almost insurmountable problems that the nation is facing and he comes up with solutions uh, the second thing i said was uh, laid out by him and, and the scriptures is culture, and I related that to the culture wars that we have today. But he understood the same thing. In fact, he tried to wipe out all of anything related to the ethnic backgrounds of any of the people in his kingdom. He wanted to uh make everyone equal, just just level the playing field, and so no one could worship their traditional gods, no one could wear their traditional dress, speak their traditional language, everyone had to be hellenized, everyone had to worship the Greek gods, and God says everything else so he's by doing that of course, with the Jews in his area, he is really attacking the truth of the God of the Bible and wanting to completely eradicate all divine viewpoint influence in the area and as when he really started bearing down on the on the Jews he made it illegal for them to own to have copies of the scriptures to read copies of the scriptures to observe the sabbath to observe circumcision or anything he was bent on destroying any influence of the true god in his in his kingdom. And then the third area that he's that is brought out that is a point of comparison, I'm summarizing with the word control, and that control manifests itself in different ways. One way it did was through taxation. Because they had this onerous debt payment to service, they imposed a heavy taxation on on everyone for all manner of different things. It is a desire to control for power. He wants to control every aspect of, of the, the citizens' lives and, and dictate everything. He wanted to control their worship. He wanted to control commerce. He wanted to control who had money and who didn't and who was in positions of power and who wasn't. He was in, in uh, Israel. He was appointing the high priests which is what eventually led to his, his downfall. And then the ultimate control for any control freak is to claim to be God. And he re- wants to be worshipped as God, so there's the self-deification going on. So those three elements are what the Scriptures emphasize, but you never see this, the point of comparison in Scripture related to his ethnicity or his geographical origin. In fact, the only place where we see a geographical annotation made is going to be in the next little section we look at, which we might get to tonight, is in Daniel chapter 9. So character, culture, and control are your three points that where the Scriptures make a comparison with the Antichrist. Now, let's go down and just hit a couple of more verses where I was ending up last week. Verse 12 states that the situation in israel the jews coming under the oppression of this uh, this particular king is related to a transgression and what was that transgression i pointed out last time that the transgression was that the jews were beginning to assimilate to the greek culture they were responding to the hellenization and this of course would threaten their uniqueness their distinctiveness in in the world that God was had called them out to be a separate and distinct people through whom He would reveal himself to the world and through whom He would provide salvation and if they lost their national ethnic identity, then that of course would make it virtually impossible to fulfill the uh, prophecies and promises that God had made so God is going to, uh, as he has done with Israel many different times in her history, He is going to bring Persecution and oppression upon them, so they are forced to unify, to unite, and to join together for survival. And that is one of the ways that, one of the reasons God allows anti-Semitism to continue in the world. One of the reasons God allowed that in ancient, from ancient Egypt all the way up to the Holocaust is because by, in, in these uh, times of persecution, uh, Jews who were tempted to completely assimilate into a Gentile culture are forced to realize they ultimately can't do that, and they have to unite together, uh, stand against their enemies. Verse 13, we read, then, I heard, this is Daniel speaking, I heard a holy one speaking. He doesn't identify this voice. Some think this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Others think it just may be another angel. We're not sure. We see the same kind of thing in, in the book of Revelation. I suspect it's the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ by, because of the parallel, but you can't be certain. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? See, you have two holy ones, and the first one is the one to whom the second one addresses the question. That suggests that the first one is the one who knows all the answers, and that would be the omniscient, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? Now, this is not prophetic to our time. It was to the time Daniel wrote it, but it relates to the uh, desecration by, the, by Antiochus Epiphanes of the holy place in the uh, temple of that time. Verse 14 the answer is, he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, there's a couple of different, uh, there's a couple of debates over this as to just exactly what this, what this means and to what this applies. But it seems that this should be taken literally as all of these kinds of things are in the scriptures. Evening and morning is the same phrase that we have in Genesis chapter 1. Evening and morning and it was day 1. Evening and morning and it was day 2. Evening and morning it was day 3. So this would refer to 2300 days. Now if you divide 2300 by uh, 360 days, which is a solar year uh, calendar that the Jews operated on that time, it comes out to roughly, roughly six and a half years. Roughly six and a half years. And it although there have been various attempts to try to tie that in like the 7th uh, day adventist uh, tried to make the 2300 days 2300 years and so they predicted that uh, uh Christ would return in 1844 that's what got the 7th day adventist going it failed they recalculated came up with 1845 didn't work then so they just d- sort of forgot about forgot about that If we look at the calendar of that time period and we look at the time when the temple was restored, we know the temple was restored on December the 25th in 165 B.C. by Judas Maccabeus. This was in the time of the uh, Maccabean Revolt, which overthrew the uh, uh, Seleucids and the cleansing of that uh, of the temple at that time that was re- that's the background for the Jewish festival of Hanukkah because as they went in to cleanse the temple, they found that there was only enough oil to burn for a day in the uh, in the menorah, but it burned for miraculously for eight days. and so that uh, fits that time period and that is uh, translated into our calendar to be approximately december twenty fifth one sixty five bc. If you backtrack 2,300 days, then you come to September 6th, uh, 171 B.C. Now, unfortunately, our knowledge of history of this period, what was going on, is is pretty limited. So we can't uh, isolate and define any days at that time. But we do know that it was in 171 B.C. that Antiochus began to assault the Jews, it was in that year that things really began to turn to turn nasty. And when he began to uh, attack Israel and began to uh, slaughter so many Jews, ultimately leading to his uh, desecration, uh, desecration of the temple. I haven't I didn't get a chart on this, but if you want to write down a couple of things just so you have a little bit of a timeline in uh, one seventy four. BC, remember we work, the numbers work from the larger numbers down, uh, problems developed with the high priesthood in Israel. The high priest was known as Onias III, and he was a legitimate high priest, a descendant of, of Aaron, uh, of the tribe of Levi, and he was the high priest. But he is a strong nationalist, and he, uh, he hates, despises, uh, Antiochus, the Greeks, and the whole process of hellenization, so Antiochus appointed a n- another high priest and he appointed him for life. He appointed Jason to be the high priest, and Jason knew that he was antiochus's pu- uh, puppet, but that was fine with him because he wanted to Today, we might say he was a liberal. He didn't really believe in any of the traditions of Israel. There need to be distinctive, the uh, uh, accuracy, the infallibility of Scripture. And so he just assimilated all these other religions and viewpoints, and he didn't stand against anything. And, uh, uh, and he understood that his main reason was to collect the taxes and to make sure that uh, the tax money in the temple ultimately ended up in the coffers of Antiochus. The same year all of this was going on, Antiochus held a, a an Olympic-type uh, athletic competition in the city of Tyre. Now, we know it's Tyre because that's the place where you uh, have uh, uh, Jezebel and the worship of Baal and one of the other names for Baal in the... Um, uh, in that area was also known as Melkart. And so, uh, the, the, Antiochus dedicated these games to the Greek god Hercules. And they were taking this money from the temple treasury to use that to worship, to worship Melkart, which of course angered all of the conservative Jews who were, wanted to stick with this, with the scripture because this was a blasphemous affront to God. Three years later, in 171, Menelaus, who is a, another syncretist, bribes Antiochus. He needs all the money he can get. Bribes Antiochus to make him the high priest. So Jason is out. Menelaus is not even of the tribe of, of Levi. He's not qualified in any way. And not only that, but Onias was still out there as a competitor. You had a period of time there with two high priests. And now Menelaus has been implicated in the murder of Onias. So Onias is murdered in 171. And that is the beginning point I'm suggesting as to when this uh, hostility to the Jews really uh, ramped up into high gear by 168 the uh, antiochus had imposed all of his uh, all of his harsh penalties all of his laws that they they couldn't possess the scriptures they couldn't read the scriptures they couldn't uh, observe any temple ritual uh, this is when he uh, sacrificed a pig on the altar and dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to um, to to Zeus and all of this has just created more and more anger and resentment and hostility among the Jewish, uh, Jewish population. And that's all part of what I identified in those three things as culture. He wants to destroy the biblical culture and replace it with a pure pagan uh, human viewpoint culture. That is one of the, the things we see typically in the history of the kingdom of man where government seeks to put itself up as, as being able to accomplish what only God can accomplish. And there seems to be in the kingdom of man this competition between the state and God, where the state always seeks to develop, always seems to develop a messianic complex that they can solve all the health problems and they can solve all the, uh, wars in the world and bring peace. And these, these are the claims that are made. And so we see those trends. It's not just something we see today. It's been going on for, for thousands of years. And then from 167 to 164, There is even more uh, intense assault against the Jews. Uh, Antiochus sent his chief tax collector into Judea with 22,000 men to attack Jerusalem on a a, uh, Sabbath. Most of the male population in Jerusalem was killed, and the women and children were then enslaved. The walls were torn down, and the old city became a place to uh, garrison the Syrian troops and this all led to ultimately the revolt that occurs uh by a family in the town the village of Modin, as the representative from the Seleucid empire comes in to offer a sacrifice to Zeus in the village then he is killed and uh, Jacob uh, Maccabees is the one who leads this uh this revolt against against the um Against the empire. So, Daniel sees all of this, and he has quite a strong reaction to it, which we see described in verse 15. It came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was the one who looked like a man. So, verses um, 15 down through uh, 19 really describe their transition point of how Daniel comes to understand. This, this vision, he doesn't just interpret it from his own, uh, from his own frame of reference. He interprets it because the angel, Gabriel, is going to interpret it for him. And so Daniel says verse 16, I heard the voice of a a man between the banks of Ulai, which we believe to be one of the canals down in the uh, southern area of uh, modern Iran or Persia. And this man called out. We don't know who this was. Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. And so... Gabriel comes forward and begins to uh, interpret this, and he states in verse 17, So he came near to where I was standing. When he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, the phrase time of the end refers to, of course, the end times of Israel. For those of you who haven't gone through Uh, Some of the things I taught in Daniel and some things I taught in when we got to this phrase of end times in Hebrews, we always have to distinguish, we have the latter days, but the latter days for who? There's latter days for Israel and there's the latter days for the church. They're not the same. The latter days for Israel, the end times seven-year tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, the latter days for the church began... Uh, With the end of the apostolic period, uh, Paul tells Timothy in the latter days and then he describes various characteristics of what will go on during the latter days and it describes the trends and cycles that will occur during the entire church age period. There is a misunderstanding at sort of a popular eschatology level that there's going to be a great end time apostasy before Jesus comes back. Well, then if, if if the return of Jesus at the rapture has to be preceded by a ap- great apostasy of the church, then it can't be imminent, can it? It can't occur at any moment because some sign, some prophetic sign would have to be fulfilled before Jesus could return at the rapture. In fact, the verse that that's based on is in 2, Timothy 2, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, which is where we're going next in our study on the Antichrist where it talks about the Antichrist not being fulfilled. Most translations translate it until the apostasy. And so we think of apostasy as the falling away from truth, the departure from truth. But actually the Greek word apostasia has to do with a departure and it can refer to many different kinds of departure. The words used of the departure of ships from a harbor. It could refer to somebody departing to go on a long trip. And it can refer to that great departure of all departures, the rapture of the church. And so uh, that verse really should be understood to mean that the Antichrist isn't revealed until the rapture, the departure occurs. It, it, there's no other sign that occurs prior to the uh, revelation of the Antichrist, so when we see this phrase the time of the end, we need to ask the question "The end for whom? well, of course, this would be Israel, and the time of the end is a phrase that relates to the seventieth uh, week of Daniel, that end time period that we know as the as the tribulation and but it's but he's not saying that this is fulfilled in the end time but it pertains to the end time. In other words, it is there's a typology, there's a shadow image that occurs here that nothing in this chapter is related to end time fulfillment. It was all fulfilled historically during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, but these events that happened, shadow, foreshadow, picture, they're a type of, the kinds of things that will take place at the, uh, during the end times. Verse 16, Daniel says, Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. See, I'm at least glad when Gabriel's talking, he put Daniel to sleep. At least, you know, I'm in good company when I put you to sleep. Uh, now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. This is a strong, strong touch. Now, I want to skip down to verse 23. Most of the rest of it we've touched on at one point or another as we've interpreted the previous, uh, the previous visions. In verse 23, we start getting into the character of the of the Antichrist. This is one of the key elements. For understanding this man, what you'll see is that there are many Antichrists, as John says, lowercase A, there are many people in church history who have these same characteristics, but they're going to be focused in a most extreme, intense form uh, in the person of the of the beast of Revelation. So Daniel eight twenty three states, and in the latter time of their kingdom, who's what's the their kingdom? Greeks. He's only talking about two kingdoms here. He's talking about the ram and the goat. And in the latter time of their kingdom, that is the latter time of the goat kingdom, the Greeks. So this again shows that this is not talking about some far distant future in time prophecy, but the latter time of their kingdom, the latter time of the Greek period. And we saw that, that this is indeed true, that only from the period of about 198 to... Uh, 163, 162, 163, do you have the period of the Seleucid domination? Now you, before that, from the breakup of the kingdom under, under Alexander in 323 to 198, which is a period of just, what, 125 years, much longer period. You have the uh, Israel is dominated by the Ptolemies, so that just a short period of time, at the end is dominated by the Seleucids. So it's indeed the latter part of the Greek, uh, the Greek kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, and the transgressors here is a reference to this. The, God, it basically, when, the scripture says that when sin reached its fullness, that means, in good Texas idiom, God's given them enough rope to hang themselves, and now they're hanging themselves. They have uh, been given the freedom by God, opportunity again and again and again to repent, to turn back to God, but they have refused to do that, and so when that transgression, that sin has reached its fullness, now God is going to, uh, release the dogs of war as it shall be to bring that harsh discipline upon the nation. A king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. Now, what exactly does this tell us? Well, first of all, verse 23 the idea that he has fierce features in the New King James translation, in another translation, I think the New American Standard translates it, he is insolent. Literally, in the Greek, we have the phrase, aspnim, which means strong of faith. And it is a phrase that indicates, um, uh, it, or it's used, I left lost a U there, it's used figuratively, to indicate someone who is arrogant, impudent, impudent, audacious, and presumptuous. So this is somebody who's really going to push the boundaries of his own prerogatives, and he is going to uh, push his own agenda uh, to the fullest. So he has the he fierce features, mean he's strong of face. He has great uh power he's audacious he's arrogant he's presumptuous and he pushes the control element second thing that it states uh new king james says he understands sinister schemes that's a gives you the idea of the hebrew idiom there uh, other translations indicate that he is uh, s- somewhat wily he, the, the Greek or the, the Hebrew word there, Mavin achidot, indicates that he dis, literally he discerns riddles, and this was a uh, idiom for indicating that he was someone who could who could figure out what seemed to be impossible problems. This guy would have a plan. He would ha- he would have a plan to solve the. Uh, Every economic crisis, the healthcare crisis, and they would be plans that, that people thought would, would work. And that was the way Antiochus was. This is describing Antiochus, but remember it is a picture of it, what the Antichrist would have to a much greater extent. Now verse 24 states, and it's a little easier to understand this because it's not based so much on, on Hebrew Indium, his power will be mighty. This emphasizes his military prowess, and, and Antiochus had that. He had defeated uh, the Persians, the Persian Empire that uh, was had broken off from uh, from the uh, Greek Empire. He defeated uh, the Ptolemaic Empire and gained control of uh, this Middle Eastern uh, area of Israel. And he had had a number of victories. He had finally been stopped by the Roman alliance of the Ptolemies. And, and that was one reason he was so angry and took it out on on the Jews, as we saw last time. This states his power will be might be, be mighty, but not by his own power. That means it's not he's not getting his power just from his own native ability and his own uh, birth IQ, but that he, the real power behind him is satanic or demonic. That's the same picture we see in. Uh, second, Thess- we'll see in Second Thessalonians two, as well as in our study in Revelation thirteen. So his his power is strong, but it's not his. He is given additional power uh, by Satan, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy. People. So this is what Antiochus did when he really took it out on Israel. When he went into Jerusalem and he slaughtered the men and he put the uh, women and children into slavery. That is what this was predicting. Uh, they, th- that kind of action had uh, was was extremely destructive and uh, was against the Jews, the holy people there. The word there would be translated saints. And when you see the word saints, whether it's in the New Testament or Old Testament, the saint is not a term that can always be applied to either the church or the Old Testament. You have to look at the context. In this context, the saints would be referring to uh, Jewish believers. You get over the New Testament. Paul addresses an epistle to the saints in uh, Corinth. He's talking about the believers, church-age believers there. When you look at various prophecies in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus co- coming to rescue the saints. Uh, if it's second coming, then he's talking about tribulation saints. So the word saint can be applied to a believer of any generation, but it does not indicate that there's not a distinction between Old Testament believers, church age believers, tribulation believers, or even millennial believers. So there's this destruction of life from the, from Antiochus Epiphanes. And then verse uh, 25 says, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. So he is shrewd, he's cunning, he is wily. The word for shrewd here is a word that's usually used in the Old Testament with a positive connotation of wisdom and understanding. It's the Hebrew word sekel, but in the in a negative context, it refers to cunning, refers to shrewdness. Remember, uh, the serpent was the uh, most cunning creature, the most subtle creature in the garden, same kind of thing he is he ha through his deceit he is able to influence and to uh, play everyone against everyone else, which is what Antiochus was doing he will and then he's arrogant, and that's what's described in the next set of uh, clauses. He will exalt himself, magnify himself, exalt himself in his heart. So first of all, there's self-exaltation, self-absorption. He's mastered all the arrogant skills to a great degree, and he, uh, to the point where he would elevate himself among the gods, a part of his uh, control desire. He will destroy many while they are at ease, that is, while they're at peace. He will even oppose the prince of princes, that is, he sees himself in opposition against God. The word prince of princes is is related to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then it says he will be broken without uh, human agency. God took him out uh, when he died. So this is a reference to uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and how he will deify himself and raise himself up above all the other gods and goddesses we saw last time. That was a reference to the... Uh, 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 re- reference to the hosts of God, and that He exalts Himself among all the gods of the of the conquered people. So, Daniel. Then we see in the conclusion here, looking at verse, looking down at verse twenty six. <clears throat> excuse me, wrong chapter. Go, looking down at verse, uh, verse twenty six, and the vision of the. Uh, let me see. Yeah, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. That is a reference to the prophecy of the time period—the 2,300 evenings and mornings. Therefore, seal up the vision. That means it's brought to a conclusion, for it refers to many days. The in the uh, in New King James, you have it refers and in the future are added to make sense in the English, but that's not in the original. It just has that sense that it refers to many days. It's not going to happen right then. This was going to happen in about 300 years. And then Daniel has an extremely strong reaction to this. He faints, he's sick for days. Afterward, he arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And then we go into the next chapter, but guess what? There, just forget that chapter divisions there. Now, what has Daniel seen in this vision? Let me back up a minute. Let me ask a better question. Where is Daniel when he sees the vision? He is a captive in the Persian Empire. The Jews have been taken out and removed from the land since 586 B.C. What has he learned in these visions? That in the in the future, the Jews in the land are going to be assaulted dreadfully by this particular strong and cunning king. But what does that mean? That means they've got to be back in the land. So he understands from that prophecy that God is going to return and restore Israel uh to the land. And so I believe that as a result of this, he really began to research through Jeremiah And that's what he refers to in uh, chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And now he understands that God's going to take him back, and this begins his prayer, which sets up for the great prophecy that we have beginning in verse 20. Now, I'm not going to go through the 70 weeks prophecy because that's not the point of our study. Our, the point of our study is to look at what the, these Old Testament prophecies in Daniel say about the Antichrist. So I just want to point out uh, one thing here from Daniel 9:26 and 27 talking about the Antichrist. You have verse 25 talks about the uh, first seven sevens. And then after that, there's a sixty-two sevens. That's all described in verse twenty-five. And then verse twenty-six says, "After the sixty-two weeks, or actually it would be sixty-nine weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary." Now that is a prophecy of, related to A.D. seventy and the destruction of the temple by Titus and the and the armies. Of Rome. Now, the argument that you might hear, position you might hear out there, is that, uh, that the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come refers ultimately to the, to the Antichrist. And this statement is really saying the people shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, who were the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? It was the Roman army. And this this was a Roman leaders, Roman empire, that destroyed the city. And I believe that no matter what the ethnic makeup of the legions was, it was still an official Roman action, and it is Rome that will produce the prince who is to come. But this has been challenged today. People say, well, if you examine uh, examine history, then you will discover that the people that actually took place in the assault on Jerusalem in AD 70 were Syrians and Arabs. This is what Tacitus writes. This is also what Josephus writes. And so therefore, the pe- people of the prince who is to come were Arabs. And the argument is that the uh, legions that made up the the 10th Roman legions specifically, and the other legions that were involved in the assault on on Jerusalem, were made up of Syrians and Arabs. Therefore, if the people are Syrians and Arabs, then the prince who is to come must be a Syrian and an Arab. Well, there's some problems with that. Uh, research has shown that there were four four major Roman legions that were present in Jerusalem under Titus when the city was assaulted and the temple was destroyed. The 10th legion was called the Fratensis legion, and the name Fratensis literally means of the straits, and this was composed of soldiers who were recruited in Italy, and from the geographical regions on either side of the Straits of Messina, that's down around uh, southern Italy and Sicily. Uh, these were the made up the primary ethnic uh, uh, makeup of the 10th Legion. The 12th Legion was also present. It was known as the uh, Fulminata Legion, and they recruited many of their soldiers from Macedonia as well as Italy. Then you had a another group that was um, uh, the Legion apollinaris and the Le- and Legion um, uh, Macedonia and were sent to the Middle East and they were primarily made up of either Greeks or Italians, but they did have a lot of um, Syrians and Arabs as servants and as soldiers, but these were not Syrian and arab troops the um, the 10th legion had its uh, camp on Mount Scopus. Some of you have been there. That was where they, uh, uh, that was where the Fulminata and the Polinaris legion had their camp. Excuse me. The 10th legion camped on top of Mount Olives uh, directly across from the temple. And it was from those locations that they assaulted uh, the temple in the final assault when they destroyed the temple. But, The the leaders were Roman. The operation was a Roman Empire operation. The majority of the men, the the officers, as well as the men, were Roman or Greek. They were not Syrian, and they were not Assyrian. So that sort of negates that whole whole claim. Another claim, and I'll just close with this because I want to point this out and not give any more time to it. If you turn over to Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, there's an extensive prophecy in Micah 5 related, related to the Messiah, of course. There's the famous quote, famous statement rather in verse 2 that indicates the birthplace of the Messiah in Bethlehem, Ephrata. But when you get down to uh, verse uh, 3, when you get down to verse 3, the focus there begins to be on the future. From verse three to fifteen, really relates to the kingdom time when there will be peace to the ends of the earth. Now there is a reference here to the that's translated by some to be the Assyrian in verse five. That begins, and this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes on into our land. Now, there are some that will go to this verse and say, See, this is the assault of the Antichrist. He is an Assyrian. There's a couple of problems with this. First of all, it's not at all clear that the term the Assyrian refers to a particular Assyrian, but it could be a way of expressing the Assyrian empire. At the time that Micah wrote, which was the same time that Isaiah was prophesying, uh, the assyrian empire was the major enemy of israel and so they that term the uh, of, of assyrian there was a term that was just used as a symbol or representation of the enemies of israel the time frame of course as i stated earlier though from verse 3 on really relates to relates to the millennial kingdom the time when there is peace and there won't be these threats from uh, from enemies like the Assyrians. That is the thrust of that particular passage. And then, last but not least, they emphasize this thing with the uh, uh, the goat and the Greek Empire. And he comes out of that area. But the emphasis in in uh, uh, Daniel seven, the emphasis in the end of Daniel nine is that the last empire, the Roman Empire, is the one that produces the Antichrist, the feet of clay and iron. That's the revived Roman Empire. It's the, uh, it's the, that, that indescribable beast in Daniel chapter 7 that produces the Antichrist, not the third kingdom, which is the kingdom Of Greece, so that sort of takes us up to the last section that's going to deal with the Antichrist in Daniel, which is Daniel 11, and we'll come back and wrap up Daniel's uh, view of the Antichrist next time before we get into the New Testament passage in 2 Thess 2, and then after that we'll be back to move forward through uh, Revelation 13. Once we do this, Revelation 13 will have a lot more meaning to you because you'll really understand all the background passages and information that had already been given. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to recognize that your hand it controls history and that just as in Daniel's time, there's tremendous amount of insecurity and chaos in our world. And yet we know that you are in control and we do not need to fear or to be anxious or be concerned about what might happen because uh, you are in control and your plan is being worked out. Father, we pray that we will all be strengthened and encouraged by your word, knowing that it is eternal and infallible. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.